ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. This is Hard in the Paint with David Grubb, and I am David Grubb. All right, let's get into this thing. Uh, today's guest is my man Trevor Ritchie, the host of the Get Rich podcast. Trevor and I are going to break down the last week in the UFC, the big matches from UFC 251 and Fight Night 172. But first, we got a few things to talk about. One of the big stories yesterday, Elena Deladon, the reigning league MVP in the WNBA, uh, she wrote an open letter in the Players' Tribune uh, documenting her struggles with Lyme disease. This came after the WNBA denied her a medical exemption to not report to IMG Academy in Florida to get ready for the WNBA season. Now, this is just a bad look for the WNBA. This is the best player in your league. One of the best branded players in this league. Um, she's, you know, all the things that you want in a star basketball player. She's highly skilled. Her game is entertaining. She's one of those players who can do a lot of things. Uh, she's marketable. She, I mean, she's, her story is so compelling. You know, this was the top recruit in the country. Supposed to go to UConn. Ended up uh, transferring to, to be closer to her sister, who has special needs, left the number one program in the country to go home. So everything that you want, that people say they want in a role model out of an athlete, that's Elena Deladon. There's nothing negative about her. And so she, her question, she opened question, and I thought that this was a, a reasonable question to ask, whether or not her status in the league influenced that decision. Does the WNBA fear because of the players who have already said that they're not playing the season due to social justice commitments, to players who said that they're not playing due to health concerns, um, that they feel like they need Elena Deladon to sell that product and get them some viewership in a very critical season uh, financially for this league. And then also with the controversies that they've had with Kelly Loeffler, um, the owner of the Atlanta Dream, one of the owners of the Atlanta Dream. You also have the controversy over the living conditions down there. But this backfires if that was the intent. Because now what you've done is you have set in a process of alienating the best player in your league or at least the most valuable player from a season ago. And it's just, it's not worth it. You know, when somebody has to put on a thing that says, I take 64 pills a day, and knowing that it's killing her to do so, but because she loves to play the game so much that she's willing to take on that regimen just to be able to play, has been immunocompromised for more than nine years. 
The league should not be asking her about that. Now, her team, the Washington Mystics, has said that it's going. they are going to pay her salary. Um, she is still recovering from uh, back surgery. She was injured uh, during the playoffs, uh, gutted it out. Um, she's had surgery. She's recovering from that. The team will pay her during that. Uh, but the question will come up again if she is deemed physically ready from that standpoint to play basketball. And at this point, Deldonna says she, that's a decision that she and her wife are going to have to make together. But this shows the ridiculousness, again, if we're trying to make a choice between people's health and well-being and entertainment. Not essential services. Our entertainment. And to see how the team and the league handled this differently shows the inconsistency on every level of the sports hierarchy across leagues, whether it's the NBA, the WNBA, the NFL, collegiate sports, high school sports. There is no one who is willing to take charge of these situations and, and take on the responsibility. And that's, you know, to me, that's just not leadership. That's not leadership. And how do we illustrate this in our own backyard? Okay, so you got LSU head coach Ed Orgeron telling Vice President Mike Pence that we need football. That the nation needs football. That, that to me, is when you, people talk about keeping sports out of politics, vice versa, whatever. That's what you, that's, that's what you should be pointing out. When players are talking about life or death situations... That's not politics. That's right and wrong. That's not a Republican. That's not a Democrat. That's not a left wing. That's not a right wing issue. But politicizing the game of football on the collegiate level and saying that the country needs football is making more out of this than it should be. And I like Cocho. And I genuinely believe that he believes that what he's saying is right. And that is a good message that it makes sense, but it doesn't. He says he doesn't think we can take this away from these players. Take what away from them? Their health, their safety. If you're talking about an economic opportunity, every student who is not going to be on their campus this fall Every student who isn't able to go to class or take the classes that they need because the professor may not be available to them. For every student who had to have a cutback, you're going to tell me that this isn't fair, that you can't take this away from them. If you keep telling me that they are not different than everyone else, then you can't have this argument. That's hypocrisy. That's the hypocrisy of the whole student-athlete concept. Students should not be the ones burdened with getting, as Coach Orgeron said out of his own mouth, everything going. The economy of Baton Rouge, the economy of the state of Louisiana. That is not the burden that a student should be taking on. What that does is just reveal again to the public that these players are employees unpaid employees at that and there's no possible way to see it otherwise 
They are unpaid employees and people need to get paid off of the work and the risk taken to play this game. They need to have benefits. They need to be protected. And if you're not doing that and you're just making money off of their work and their risk, that's wrong. That is exploitation at its purest form. You cannot politicize or monetize people's lives. We lose enough kids already just in football, and we don't even remember their names. From 2000 to 2017, you had two deaths per year in college football. In high school, there are roughly 12 kids dying each year as a result of playing high school football. That doesn't include the kids who are permanently injured. Doesn't kid the, include the kids who, who get brain damage. Doesn't include the kids who, you know, may suffer emotional trauma due to hazing or whatever else. So we're politicizing and monetizing these things and we don't care about any of the other stuff that goes on with it. So why do we care so much? We are willing to put them at risk because our state and federal governments have no idea what to do during a pandemic. No one wants to be the bad guy and say, we got to stop. Nobody just wants to be the bad guy. Everybody wants to be liked. And there are some courageous leagues out there and courageous athletes out there who are making the choice to say sports is not the most important thing right now that we should be thinking about. There's no ethical way to make me believe that playing these games is the right thing to do. I'm concerned enough for the professionals. Hopefully they protect themselves legally, financially, through this once they've made their choice. And I will hope against hope that every one of them emerges from this safely. But as an adult, to watch unpaid collegiate athletes and young high schoolers be guilted into the role of keeping economies and their school budgets afloat because the system in this country of how we fund schools and how states allocate their resources is a problem. So we're asking these student athletes to make up for the bad decisions of adults. And please notice again that I am not saying Republican or Democrat because there's no differentiation on how bad this system has worked. Now, the NCAA, on the other hand, could actually be making a positive change. In college basketball, the National Association of Basketball Coaches want the SAT and ACT eliminated as factors in player eligibility. There's currently a one-year waiver of the requirement due to the pandemic. This would make it permanent. I absolutely believe that this is the right decision. Standardized test scores have been shown over and over again to be strongly linked to the three, these three issues, these three items, excuse me, family income, the education level of a child's mother, 
and their race. So that has nothing to do with their intellect, nothing to do with their ability to work hard, nothing to do with their willingness to achieve their personal view on academia. They are inversely affected and disproportionately affected, especially considering the pool of athletes that it impacts most, basketball and football. And on a collegiate level, yes, the numbers are not as high as they are on the professional level, but you're still talking about roughly 50% of your football players are African-American and more than 60% of your college basketball players are African-American. And these test requirements, because of where these kids come from, income, most level, edu- level of education, and race. So why is it a factor? And you say, oh, well, we're trying to cheapen education. Well, already half of the top 100 liberal arts colleges, according to U.S. News and World Report, which most parents use to start making their list for the colleges or universities that they want their child to apply to, half of those have already eliminated those tests as requirements. My alma mater was one of the first to do it back in 2009. Wake Forest University was one of the first to do it in 2009. And to this date, there's been no difference in the academic achievement of those who did and did not submit a score. Grade point average in high school is a far greater indicator of whether or not a kid is going to be successful over a test score. Because the grade point average shows how hard they're willing to work. Or a level of aptitude at retaining that information. Standardized tests do not reflect that. And what has also happened is that every one of these campuses that have eliminated those requirements have seen greater diversity by race and by income level on their campuses. And isn't that what we want? We want our campuses to have exposure to different types of people so that your student body can get to see different perspectives. You want there, we keep saying we want people to have conversations on campus at different points of view, but you can't have isolated places where this group is the one that goes to school and this one is the one that can't. So the NCAA needs to make that move. It would be a step in the right right direction But again, the NCAA would be behind the times. They've seen the research. Their member institutions did the research. So why didn't they act sooner? That's the key question to ask during all this change. Over and over again, everybody should be asking why. Because it's just not good enough to only do something. Why are you doing it? What is your motivation here? To the Washington Redskins issue a press release... And not once do they apologize to native peoples. They mention their sponsors. Not once do they mention native peoples. So ask why people are doing what they're doing. Because if they're not doing it for the right reason, then you're not really going to see change. You're not going to see change. You'll see rearrangement. You'll see appeasement. You won't see change. Some of you don't want change. That's cool. There's some of us that do. And we'll fight for that. But if you want change, it has to be active and it has to be for the right reasons. 
Um, other good news, though, locally, um, Pelicans making some great news. First, Drew and Lauren Holiday have pledged up to $5.3 million in his game checks to start the Drew and Lauren Holiday Social Justice Impact Fund. The money will go to help communities in L.A., Indianapolis, and New Orleans. New Orleans could receive as much as $1.5 million under um, the proposal, and there's also a commitment of $1 million to black-owned businesses around the country. That is the same type of commitment that the league, the owners, and other players have to make. Money and power. That's what changes things in the country. People who have power and people who have money. Players have money. They don't have power. Owners have power. Commissioners have power. Leagues have power. Players can use their money the best they can. The owners have to help on the other side. So the Pels and the Saints, I will give them credit for this. They're among 100 companies that will mentor students from 41 different HBCUs. That's a good thing to do. You open up the pool of talent. Increasing the pool of talent, no matter what thing you're talking about, is always good. The more choices you have to, to choose from when it comes to finding the best is never a bad thing. It's easy to eliminate bad candidates. It's hard to find great ones. And there's a lot of great talent that's been overlooked at HBCUs for a long time. On the court, Lonzo Ball continues to get rave reviews as a leader for this team. I think this is what people wanted to see out of him coming out of UCLA as him seize control of the team. Remember, Magic Johnson dubbed him as the person who's going to revive Showtime. Playing with, Lonzo, with um, LeBron James was the worst thing for, Le, for Lonzo Ball. LeBron is a ball-dominant player. Lonzo is a ball-movement player. Lonzo needs to keep the ball moving. That's what he wants. When the ball touches his hand, it's not staying there. It's either going for an assist or it's going around to move the offense. So when you put Lonzo in charge, you get two things. You're going to get tempo. Again, fastest from turning a defensive rebound into points in the league. You're going to get passes ahead. You're going to get lobs. You're also going to get passes that other players cannot do. But that sharing does create a culture of sharing the basketball. And that's what Alvin Gentry wants, is a culture of sharing the basketball. The thing you want to limit is turnovers. And generally, Lonzo is also very good at taking care of the basketball. He does not turn it over a lot. Now, part of that may be because of his lack of drives. The Pelicans want him to up his drives. They want him to get to the free throw line about five times per game, which would be a significant increase for him. But if he can do that without increasing turnovers by going into traffic to create contact, then that opens up more for his teammates. Guys like Zion Williamson, who he seems to have had a great connection with from the day that they stepped on the court together in practice, to guys like a Brandon Ingram, who's going to be a cutter as well as a shooter. A guy who loves to feast in the mid-range, who vacate one spot and get into the open spot for Lonzo to hit. 
for J.J. Redick to spot up on the other side. Lonzo was fantastic at finding Redick on the opposite side. So to see him seize that mantle in the years when Drew just wasn't capable of doing it and didn't want to be that guy. The Pelicans needed somebody to seize the mantle of leadership. It had to be the point guard on the floor. You saw the impact that Rajon Rondo had in one season. And a lot of that was due to force of personality. And understanding and being taking pride in being the smartest and most prepared person on the floor. For all of his flaws, Rondo, his personality was a big reason the Pelicans were so focused that season. Particularly after DeMarcus Cousins went down, Rondo really transformed that last third of the season into a different player. Um, Zion Williamson, uh, bad news. He had to leave the Orlando campus to attend to what the Pelicans are calling an urgent family medical matter. He does plan to return for the restart of the season. Whatever the family concern for Zion, I just want to take care of that. Don't rush back right now. Family is just too important to neglect. He gets back when he gets back. I'm not concerned about that. Um, So just best wishes to him and his family and whatever the resolution of that. um, I hope it's a a positive one. Okay, we've got time for a break. And when I do come back, we'll have my discussion with Trevor Ritchie right here on Hard to Paint. Hey yo, hey yo, you like a snake in the grass that strikes the bite. Dangerous mind that poison the waters. Walls up like trumps on all the borders. Borders, cribs like junk. We're back on Hard to Paint, and my guest today is Trevor Ritchie, the host of the Get Rich podcast. Um, that's where you get all your information on MMA, UFC, boxing, and uh, when we get to it, It'll be more gambling as well. There's a lot of sports betting uh, advice there. So, Trevor, it's good to see you again. Good to talk to you again. Um, it's been a little bit since we last got to do this. So, um, glad to have you back, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. I was just about to say it has been a while since we've done something like this, seeing each other in this type of format. So, it should be fun. Yes. It's good to do it again. All right. So, let's start with last night. Well, not last night. Let's start with – um. Uh, yeah, we'll start with uh, Rose Nama Yunus. Let's start with her. Yeah, well, when you're looking back last Saturday, UFC 251, Rose Nama Yunus, you know, we could start with either the fight or everything that she had to do t- uh, to get to that point, obviously, right? Um, you're talking about first the KO slam. This was a rematch. So the first time around, she gets dropped on her head, knocked out after probably a first round where she looked better than she ever had in her career to me at least just so incredibly on point and then unfortunately that happened in the second round Um, so she immediately takes the rematch she has to find her passion for fighting all over again before she can even do that Um, then as you know as we were talking about on your show before this fight was scheduled and then Mm -hmm. she has death in the family due to COVID-19 has to delay the fight and then now remember that fight was scheduled for Las Vegas so she didn't even necessarily have to go to Abu Dhabi. She did that just to be a part of Fight Island and to, you know, go ahead and get this fight going and that type of thing. And she comes out and she didn't quite perform up to the level, say, in the first round that she did in the first fight. But she was phenomenal 
the striking, she won by a landslide, head strikes, everything. It was pretty clear cut to me, at least, that she won the first two rounds. Uh, Jessica kind of came on in the third. And obviously, Jessica also made some adjustments from the first fight, which is why Rose wasn't just at that elite, elite level. But when you're talking about she has Trevor Whitman in her corner, one of the best in the game, she still came out and, and improved the thug that she is. And like I said, after everything that she went through to get to that point, it's really impressive. And now she's she's pretty much right there in the driver's seat to get a, a title shot, shot against uh, John Wei Lee in that strawweight division. So you put her in that title contender mix. She's, she jumped. I mean, she clearly jumped, I think, in the latest rankings from four to two. But that position there, yeah, like you said, it's there for her. What does that matchup look like? Um, who, has, who would be the favorite and why at, at this point? I think Zhang Wei Li is definitely the favorite. You look at the last fight that she had against um, Yoana Young Jacek, which was the fight of the year, probably still the fight of the year to me. That would obviously be you know competitive with Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker, which we just saw not too long ago. Um, but for sure, when you look at the fact that when it comes to the Rose and uh, Yoana rivalry that they had before this, when it comes to the strawweight division, Rose got the better of that rivalry. She, you know, was a step ahead when it comes to that. So when it comes to matching her up now with Whaley, who Whaley already beat JJ, um, Whaley beat Jessica Andrade after Andrade beat Rose, and Jessica went on with the title, lost it to Whaley, and that started her title reign. So it's kind of the perfect matchup right now, especially when you know, when you know at this point that you're going to get the best version of Rose why kind of waste that time here when she's already been a champion she is a champion she's shown that she's cut from that cloth so when you have someone like I said at the top of their game with a guy like Trevor Whitman and they can just control the sport they the way they have Justin Gaethje Kamaru Usman I mean that's not I don't see another matchup that would even be worth putting her on a card or putting her somewhere if it's not giving her that title shot because she just simply deserves it so you think the styles certainly in that fight would that lead to a really active fight, you know, with fans? Because, again, that's what that you just we just saw yesterday, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It was just not an active night. Would this fight be something that lives up to the hype in, in this circumstance? I would say it was still active in the sense that you definitely saw earlier, at least I was taken aback by Jessica Andrade's power. You were like, okay, I see something that caused for caution a little bit for Rose. And at the same time, she was kind of finding her way. It's been a while since she fought. This is also, like I said, somebody that dropped her on her head and knocked her out. So there's a feeling out process. She was having fun. She was trying out random stuff and just looked like she was enjoying herself in there. So I wouldn't say that necessarily a lack of activity, but when you look at some of the JJ fights, or you look at that fight of the year and, and the title shot, like we're talking about for sure. But, you know, when you a fight of the year isn't always the best thing because you're getting two people that just have to take a ton of damage. I mean, yeah, we love that. We like the violence, all that stuff. But it's not the, the most technical thing. It's not ideal for either side or either camp or corner. Um, so when it comes to the Rose fight, I don't think it might be it, – it's going to be hard for anything to match the action level that Whaley and JJ had in, in that fight earlier this year. But I think it's still going to be active in the sense that you're going to get that much – excitement out of it but it also be a little bit more technical and you get a little more out of, out of that aspect where you're scoring the rounds and, and not where everything's a coin flip or you just don't know and people you know I, I can't speak for exactly how the fight would come out but at the same time I think it would it would definitely be one of those that, that go down in history for sure. Well sticking with 251 you had Piotr Jan earning the Bantamweight title by TK over Jose Aldo. Um, what does this do for Jan? This, this puts him in great shape to get a championship bout. I mean, I mean, he's, 
Well, right. Well, he, you know, he's starting his reign now at this point, and it's good to be him because there's not just, at, you know, before this, I was kind of in a place where I felt like Aljamain Sterling, which we, you know, we saw beat Corey Sanhagen in kind of that number one contender fight. I felt like he was the guy sitting there in the middle that deserved to fight for the title to be in that position. Now with, with Jan performing the way he did, I feel a lot more validated about him being in that position now, just in the sense that he comes out, Jose Aldo, obviously a legend. Jan, looked like he could finish it in the first round. I mean, Aldo was out of breath. I think maybe he just got the wind knocked out of him, had to get some air back in him to recover. But Aldo comes back second and third round, vintage performance out of him. I mean, the leg kicks come out. He sweeps Jan off his feet, uh, pretty much in control of that fight. And then, yeah, Jan comes back, wins the fourth, and you go into that fifth with that game seven mentality that you know it's 2-2, winner takes all here in the fifth. And for Jan to come out and, and not only go home with the belt in that moment with all the pressure on him, uh, never kind of being there before the way that Aldo's been through this time and time and time again. Not only did he go away with the Bantamweight belt, he also finished an absolute legend to do it. And that fight probably should have been stopped sooner because it, it got pretty violent there at the end, probably about 45 seconds, 30, 45 seconds or so could have been stopped sooner. But yeah, man, when you look at it, it could be Aljamain Sterling next for him in, in terms of a title defense. The UFC hasn't quite committed to that yet mm -hmm. um but you have cody garbrandt who they have a invested interest in and is also a very huge name has a lot of draw um who knows henry cejudo i don't think anybody believes he, he can't shut his mouth for more than five minutes every every fight night every card he's gonna call somebody out say something about somebody whether it's a fight i'm sure we'll get to with alexander volkanovsky mm -hmm. trying to go to featherweight or whether it's uh jan or any of these guys um so it's it's not bad to be Piotr Jan right now in his position with multiple names to kind of work with and, and start his reign. And if you didn't know with the Cody Garbrandt situation, they actually had a dust up. Of, I don't, I don't remember the pay-per-view, but it was kind of a backstage thing. Cody's in the suit. I, I think it was, I think Jan fought that night and they, you know, they have some, a story to build on there. So I, I would hate to see Aljamain Sterling get jumped, but for some reason it feels like one of those odd things where normally the UFC is pretty upfront. They'll say, Hey, Gilbert Burns is next. Hey, this guy is next. Right. And we thought we had that with Aljamain Sterling, but they haven't committed yet. So there seems to be a little bit of wiggle room at, when it comes to who might be next for Piotr Jan. So with Jan at 15 and one, that's a He's had a fantastic start. Where does this put him among the, you know, across weight divisions? Where would you rank him right now? What's tough because when, when you, if you're talking about all, all the champions in the UFC, you can make an argument right now this is the greatest crop of champions that they've ever seen. I mean, look at how many, how many losses do these guys have. Does anyone right now – let's go – Peter has one. Um, Volkanovsky, I think, only has one. Um, Kamar Usman, one maybe two losses, uh, John, John Jones, uh, Steve, probably heavyweight is the only one Steve a, and what he's only got like three. And you're talking about the heavyweight division. I mean, it's not easy. You, you don't see heavyweights do the undefeated thing and all, you right. know, it's hard with, especially when you got guys like Francis Ngannou, Alistair Overeem, you just look at the pictures of these guys, you, you know, what's up in that division. So, I mean, he's definitely at the bottom of the tower, not to discredit him when it comes to, when you're looking at all the champions, but that's uh, definitely not a dis credit or a disservice to him in any way when you look at the, the fact that this is probably the greatest crop of champions that the UFC's ever seen. And what's funny, though, is they've got to get all of them back into the ring. And that's their yeah. struggle is to get them in the ring and have this kind of event that would really probably propel them to another level right now because they have so much of the sporting world to themselves. 
Well, I guess at the same time, though, uh, you know, I don't think anybody believes Conor McGregor's done. Obviously, you have some stars outside of the champions that you can bring in where you don't just have to have the title belt. So you look at a guy like uh, Jorge Masvidal. I don't think we've ever seen a story in professional sports like him in the sense that, look, he added probably 500,000 pay-per-view buys to this event. Uh, when you look at it, it did 1.3 million. And say, if you go back to 249, the first event with Ferguson and Gaethje, it did about 700,000. And I can guarantee you that this card wasn't going to do 1.3 million without Jorge Masvidal on it. So I'm just saying, when, there, there's guys in the sport like him that you can still build um, that, you know, just a year ago, he was a journeyman. He was right. not, you know, he was win one, lose one type of guy, or at least that that's how he was looked at. He reinvents himself. He grows the hair out the beard, street Jesus, knocks people out, fighter of the year. They make a belt up for him. And now, you know, he's he's the guy at the top of the card that feeds the other guys on the bottom of the card. And, and he carries that power now. And I don't, I don't think he's going to use that. I think he's more concerned with getting back to Usman. But there are people um, outside of the champions that can bring that draw. And at the same time, you're coming back around to getting these people going. Kamaru Usman's, you know, he's fighting for legacy at this point to to be right up there with George St. Pierre. Um, Jan's definitely got to legitimize a title reign. Volkanovski now has moved past Max Holloway, so he's looking at contenders. Um, you have the the Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa matchup that's very highly anticipated. At that point, we're just, you know, really we're talking about John Jones here. Do they do an interim matchup? What it, you know, Jan Blahovich, Dominic Reyes, how long does he sit out? And we already have the heavyweight matchup booked up. So the UFC is getting back around to where this is going to start rolling again, for sure. So, of course, you can't have a weekend in the UFC without some type of controversy. Sometimes it's not really a real controversy. Sometimes it is. The controversy that came out of 251 was the officiating. Um, those officials, Dana White spoke against them, said that they didn't do a great job in so many words, but um, they're, they're not going anywhere. So you have that decision. Let's start with, let's start with the, the first real questionable decision, the one that people talked about the most, and that's the Volkanovski getting the split decision over Holloway. So what did you, how did you score it when you were watching it? You see FanDuel did give the refunds to those who bet on Holloway. Is that an unprecedented thing in a fight that was actually scored and fought for the UFC? Yeah, that's that's pretty unprecedented. You don't you don't see that very often. I don't think, especially a place like FanDuel, who, if you've seen, uh, has been making a little bit of a push lately with advertisement and, and bringing media members in, things of that nature. And for them to do that, yeah, you definitely don't see it often. For me personally. Um, I think I was wrong when I scored it when I watched it. I think I was seeing it through the lens of how are the judges going to score this because things like this happen. And, and I have receipts where I'm messaging friends and I'm, I'm, they think Max has absolutely dominated this fight. Um, and I'm telling them, hey, do not be surprised when this comes out for a decision as Vulcan. I, I was saying this throughout the entire fight from literally the middle of the third round. Like, hey, if he comes out and he keeps this rolling and wins four and five, then this is a coin flip. This is not for sure for Max. You watch it again, I think, Max, we can definitively say one rounds one through three, three being very close where Volkanovski started to come on. But I think Max still won that round. And then Volkanovski wins four and five to me. I can't call it a robbery in the sense that any time a champion wins round four and five and keeps their belt, I'm not mad because, the you know, they, there's a reason it's extended. And, and, you know, say Big, Big John McCarthy would probably be ready to strangle the living hell out of me right now for saying that because he wrote the rules and, and he would want to slap me upside of the head with the 10-9 point system because at the end of the day, 
the four and five are not worth more than one through three. And if you secure three, you get the win. But I said the same thing with Jones Reyes. And, and, and it's kind of a thing where when you're talking about legacy, it's where, you know, Max Holloway is kind of the Holloway, excuse me, is the, the fan favorite, the guy that people kind of want to push uh, Volkanovsky, not quite so much. So when you look at Jones, you don't quite, I didn't feel the same feeling that you got with Alex, right? Just because it's like, we're more okay with it because he has the legacy and he's the goat. And if he keeps it, well, yeah, he did win four and five. So it's okay. I didn't think we gave Dominic Reyes the same respect that Max Holloway. You, it's kind of a flip of the coin. You either have to treat Dominic and Max the same way, or you have to treat Jones and Volkanovsky the same way. You can't do either or when it comes to that three to two um, scenario. But at, at the same time, is anyone clamoring to see that third fight immediately? Even if you thought Max won three to two, if he walks away with the, you know, you kind of want to see, do, does Volkanovsky have it? Can they come back and cross pass a little bit more organically down the road with how stacked this division is? It just wasn't a scenario to me where, Yes, you could argue Max should have walked away with the belt, but even so, you know, at the end of the day, Volkanovski did what he had to do. He's standing there in the fourth and fifth round after getting beat up, and his hands are down. He's not, you know, he's showing his game. He's not that worried about it, and he went out and won those rounds, and, and if the judges give it to him, I can't be mad at him. So, I, you know, I think I'm ready to see him take on some other contenders, but I definitely would like to see eventually this come back around because I definitely don't think it's a closed case that Alexander Volkanovski is, is a clear-cut better fighter than Max Holloway, especially after what you see uh, from rounds one and two in that fight. But I, I would contest that some people should go watch the fight and, and yes, take in rounds one and two, but maybe just start the fight and watch it from three through five. Keep in mind what happened, but don't watch rounds one through two and let that kind of bias you through three through five because Volkanovski did kind of, I think there was a little bit of a more of a championship performance that he didn't really get credit for there. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's been throughout the history of these types of sports that if you want to take down the champ, you better dominate. Because if you leave it up to the judges, the, it, it typically will go in the champion's way. Because like you said, unless the champion has been to the point where it just, it's, it's lopsided, you said, and, it, and this wasn't that. You give the deference to the champion. You have to beat the champ. And, and I think, it, like you said, when it's, when it's the hair's length between the two, when anybody who, who watches it from one perspective or the other could walk away and, and reasonably make the argument for either fighter, it's going to go to the champ. I mean, I, and, that's and just you, We could make the arguments going back to the first fight where I saw Volkanovski. way max was kind of arguing that he won that fight so i mean this was definitely a lot more controversial but you're gonna have that you know people on either side of it and, and i get that it's more popular right now or more common to hear people kind of making the push for holloway and thinking that he got robbed but you know and i get like i said once again i get the point system that's kind of a hard thing to argue when if i say i i think he won three to two but i'm also not mad at it but that's just how i look at it when it comes to champions because i think it's more of a special thing this isn't uh, you know I don't mean any offense. This isn't the WWE. It's nothing like that where the belt just moves, that type of thing. Like a champion deserves to be able to build something and not have to kind of go through that process unless they, def you know, that's the unified world championship for It's not just, it's not supposed to resemble just the UFC. This is for everyone. That's the big show. Um, so I think it's a little bit more of a big deal than when we just kind of want to toss it around a little bit, which is why I was, I was okay with the Jones thing. Like how much does a, a, a fight like Jones Reyes change the, the course of history and the legacy of John Jones and arguably who the, the president of the company says is the greatest of all time. 
you don't really want that to happen. And I think after what Volkanovski did in the first place, and once again, when it comes to every single one of these fighters, what they're having to do to go to Fight Island to put these fights on, and, and when he's already the champion, obviously coming from Australia and, and going through all of that type of thing, um, I, you know, you can't say, oh, you lost, but you still deserve to keep the belt. But in a sense, as the champion, he does kind of earn that respect, at least that he did keep the belt. You can't kind of hang this over his head or hold it against him. He's the champion, and I think he, he's owed that credit. So then let's now let's go to the main event with Usman um, beating Jorge Masvidal. Um, that was also considered controversial to a degree. I didn't think it was as controversial as the other fight, but um, your thoughts. And I'm just curious, why is it controversial? Is it because it was boring? And when it's boring, is it because the person that dominated didn't try to do more? Isn't that an odd concept? Do we forget when, when someone does this type of thing that the other person is still trying to take their head off at all times? Right. We kind of lose that, right? It's like, what, it was boring. Well, no, the other person was trying to do what they normally did for the rest of their career and what built them up to be the BMF. It wasn't like they just dropped that and, and let you wrestle around with them. That doesn't happen. And, and you know, Tomas Dahl's credit, he comes in, highly disrespectful or maybe not disrespectful but he definitely didn't look like body language wise he was there for a title fight he was putting off this aura that this was going to be a breeze comes out in the first round and looked about as good as he's ever been in his career in the first round won that one and then Usman pretty much controls two through five um, and there's some weird things in there that, that people normally don't see or isn't the most exciting with the toe stomping and the, the clinch work and the wrestling and the lack of ground and pound where normally people want to see a Habib kind of smash when they you know smash you when they get on the ground that type of thing where Kamara Usman doesn't really do that he, you know in his position we we're, we're giving Jorge all this credit and, and I think both guys here deserve more credit than they're getting but at the same time Jorge's stock still went up and Usman's went down for some reason when if we're talking about compelling fights let's just go back to Kamar Usman's last fight against Colby Covington that was an amazing fight it was right. an incredible fight and we forgot about that in the flash of a pan just because of Jorge Masvidal when like I said we're giving Jorge this credit when at the same time Usman took this fight on six days notice too it's not just one guy that takes it on six days' notice. Uh, Kamar Usman was preparing for a whole different person in Gilbert Burns, someone who he had trained with extensively, someone who not only had he trained with, was going to have his coaches in his corner. Like, he, he had to leave his camp to go to Trevor Whitman, which is still an advantage to him. Obviously, I'm very high on Trevor Whitman. But – when you look at the other side, you were going to fight someone who was going to have coaches that got you the got you to the belt, helping the other guy try to beat you. That's a whole different mental game that he was going through, and then have to jump to the BMF for a Masvidal six days notice. He wasn't. He's not going to give up dominant position. He's not going to give up control of the fight just to do more damage and risk Jorge being able to get up, scramble, and get off more in those exchanges. So Kamara had to limit that as much as possible, and it went. Also, considering what Camaro had on the line with George St. Pierre and tying the longest winning streak in, in welterweight history in the UFC with 12 wins, and now in his next defense would be able to pass that. And I think definitively with this win, you can say, without sounding stupid by any stretch of the imagination, that he's the second greatest welterweight of all time next to George St. Pierre. There was no sense in any way, shape, or form risking losing all of that 
by trying to stand with Jorge Masvidal, by trying to finish Jorge Masvidal if he didn't absolutely had to. And when you look at the history of the sport, it, it also confuses me with this little boring narrative, I guess, because GSP wasn't the most exciting to watch fight, if we're being quite honest, all the time. He did what he had to do to get wins. Randy Couture wasn't always the, the most fun. He wasn't the heavyweight that was going out there knocking everybody out. Uh, Hoist Gracie. It only wanted – he'd just lay on his back and say, come to me, right? Uh, Daniel Cormier hasn't always been the most exciting to watch fight, but we revere these guys, and there's a reason for it, and it's because they're true martial artists. And, and I, I think it's a shame that we kind of haven't put Usman in, in the same light yet. And, and as much as I haven't quite – you know, been rooting for Usman or been very high on him. He's growing on me. And at this point, I kind of hope he is able to build something enough to where he, he gr- gets credit for what he's already done to this point because he really deserves it. So what is the setup for him now? Like you said, his stock has dropped a, a bit in the public's eyes, but um, within the UFC, where do they see him? And what is this, what is his next step? He's still a headliner. Don't get that wrong. I mean, when you're talking about the legacy and the stature that he has in a welterweight division, that's very exciting. He's still going to be headlining cards. And you already have a matchup that was supposed to be the headliner on this card. That's going to be next for him, I assume, Gilbert Burns. I I personally would like to see either Burns and Leon Edwards fight or Leon Edwards get this shot. Because when you go back to the fact that, you know, Burns got this position because he beat Tyron Woodley, Leon Edwards had that Woodley fight first coronavirus messed that up then Leon Edwards got offered the Usman fight he didn't want to take it on the short notice because he knows if he loses he doesn't have Jorge Masvidal draw he can't just kind of work his way back to the shot if he got that and lost it then everything that he worked for on an eight nine fight winning streak would be lost at that point he can't risk that Um, so I don't think he deserves to be the odd man out because a virus happened when he was supposed to get both of these fights like I said not only the Woodley fight but the Usman fight but it seems like the the UFC is committed to Gilbert Burns um, so I would assume that fight's next. Maybe Leon Edwards fights Jorge Masvidal. That's a fight I would love to see because of the three-piece in a soda situation where essentially backstage Jorge just walked up to this man, bop, 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 and walked away, and that was it. And Leon never really got to answer to that. And this is kind of a sport where – you know, those things shouldn't happen because you can get paid to do this. But at the same time, when it does, there's also a place where you can settle that and once again, get paid to do that. So why not? Especially when, when there's, you know, that story, the incredible draw that comes with that merch, crazy stuff they could do with that fight. Um, but I would hope now for Kamara Usman that we go um, in some order, Gilbert Burns and Leon Edwards should be the next two people he's looking at for sure. Wednesday night, not a lot to, to discuss coming out of it. But the women's division still still uh, performing strong uh, on that side. Talk about the the big fight from um, fight night and just um, what was the disappointment with the card? I guess really with the card overall. I mean, it wasn't. You know, if you if you like the UFC, you still enjoy it. There were still good fights. It's just the sense when people want to see the striking and people get knocked down. Uh, you know, this was the first event since 2007, only the second event all time, actually, that the UFC uh, recorded zero knockdowns. Um, not something you see very often. But like I said, the main event is still really intriguing, especially something, once again, we've talked about quite quite a lot, the featherweight division, which super stacked right now. Um, these guys, when you talk about Calvin Cater and Dan Ige, throwing pretty much everything they had in that main event. Um, I still think at the same time, most people had it four to one for Cater, maybe three, two his way, but it was pretty, pretty definitive that he won that believe that's four out of the last five for him. 
at the at the same time, I don't think Dan Ige lost anything. He, I think that was his fifth fight in the last right. year, which is crazy. Uh, he was on like a six fight win streak, something like that. So uh, no one's no one's standing in line necessarily trying to fight him. There, I mean, there might be some people below him that you know are the type of people that would call anybody's name, but he's not the guy. You know, he's like that Gilbert Burns, where it's like when you're talking about people in the division, it's like out of any of the guys you want to fight, that might not be the best one. Dan Ige is still that guy. Um, but well, does Cater though? Does he jump? Even better line. position. Maybe not the front of the line, but a, a much even better position than Dan Ige. And obviously that's where I was going there. Four out of his last five. He's the first guy since this pandemic shutdown that's gone 2-0. So once again, when you're giving these guys credit for everything that they go through, they already put together two wins with everything that's going on. He deserves a lot of credit. Uh, but he's, I think, sixth in the rankings right now in the but, featherweight division. He, but when you look ahead of him, everybody's yeah, matched up. Everybody's matched up other than Max Holloway. So can he get that fight? I would like to see it. Um, I think that would be a great fight for the fans. But you look at, you know, the Korean zombie and Brian Ortega's already matched up. And, uh, you know, Ortega could go to Holloway and they could do a rematch. That was a really good fight the first time around. Uh, the Korean zombie would like Volkanovski next. If he wins, bounce him to a title shot. Then you don't know really what's going on with Zabit and Yair Rodriguez. If Zabit wins, he's going to, uh, I don't want to say massive star, but he's definitely going to be growing on the same level of, he it got that Habib appeal, obviously, and uh, going to be able to build on that. Won't be far from a title shot if he beats Yair Rodriguez. Uh, I don't think Cater can fight anyone below him. Uh, unless it's Josh Emmett, which I have no idea what he'll fight again because he's rehabbing right now. Um, so really the only guy that's not booked right now would either be a title shot, which Cater's got at least one more fight before he gets that, I believe, or Max Holloway, which I think would be a possibility and a lot of fans would like to see. Um, so looking ahead to 252, what do you think are going to be um, – I mean, some of it's starting to be locked in. Do you have a sense of what the card is going to be and how big this event will be? Yeah, if you don't, if I have a second, I can pull some of the fights up because we've had mm -hmm. some of them roll in. Um, of course, you know, you're, when you uh, talk about the main event and Stipe Miocic, Daniel right. Cormier, um, I, I'm not sure that there's ever been a, a fight in the history of the heavyweight division that you could say is bigger. Um, there's been some, you know, you have Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez, which was a really big fight. Maybe um, Brock Lesnar, Alistair Overeem, something, but nothing along the lines of a trilogy where you could argue uh, the greatest heavyweight of this era, depending on who comes out of this. Uh, obviously, a series when you get to a trilogy, it's 1 1, uh, first round knockout the first time around, and then, you know, an incredible adjustment by Stipe the second time around to finish him. And that, you know, that's not. Uh, always a normal thing either when you talk about a trilogy, the fact that both fights were finishes, that both guys ended this and definitively said, I'm better on that night a year apart. Um, let's, I'm looking at the rest of the card now. So you have that, Stipe Miocic, Daniel Cormier. That okay. adjustment for Cormier is going to be the tale of the fight. What well, he yeah. did this time. Because it seemed like his strategy changed. And we talked about this, you know, at the time. Like his strategy changed during the fight, and it just kind of played into Miocic's hands. Well, a, a little bit in the sense that he, when Daniel had so much success in the striking, where, where who could blame him? He was touching Stipe every time he threw something. Um, 
So he just kind of fell in love with that and didn't really try to wrestle at all. Thought he could finish Stipe and Stipe's chin is incredible. Uh, he can eat just about anything and he has from some of the best in the history of the heavyweight division. So when Daniel kind of committed to that type of game, which over the course of a five round fight is eventually going to play into Stipe's hands. When Stipe just went to the body and sucked the life out of Daniel Cormier, then he couldn't take anymore. And then it's just level changes at that point to, to finish Daniel, um, which I think now keep in mind that this will not be to be a, uh, Fight Island fight. This will be in Las Vegas at the Apex, which will be a smaller cage, which in theory would benefit Daniel Cormier in the wrestling department, um, which is a tactic that he's openly said he's going to use more that we haven't seen in the first fight or the second fight. Um, that, you know, think about the pressure here, too. We're talking about two guys that could ultimately both walk away from the sport, depending on what happens here. There's no world that Daniel Cormier wants to lose this fight and be able to feel comfortable about ending his career on that note. So he's going to do what he has to do to win this fight. And, and uh, I would assume that wrestling, which is his strong suit, is going to be the biggest part of that formula. Uh, also, like I said, considering the cage size, and that's something, you know, he, he's told Stipe already, you know, bring your wrestling shoes. So we'll see if that's the case. Um, who knows what Stipe's response to that. It'll be a, it, I would expect to see a little bit of a different fight uh, than, than what you would think coming out of the first two. And that's not it for this card while I'm scrolling through these. Uh, I only see two right now, and I'm pretty sure there's more that, that have been booked since then. But, I mean, you have Junior Dos Santos and, and Jarzinho Rosenstrike, which I don't think Rosenstrike really – you can't say he didn't get a fair shake. He got a fair ch- shake. He got knocked out in the first round by Francis Ngannou, um, which he's not that's the only that's one. That's tough tough night, right. Um, so he deserves a little bit of a chance to show that, you know, when he was – I think he was undefeated before that, and he was getting close to the top five in the rankings. So that's tough for anybody. And, yeah, he deserves another chance to slide in there. Uh, and prove himself and then man fan favorite we talked about him and I've told you his ceiling's going to be coming a becoming a world champion but I think the UFC is going to take it slow for him right now and that's a uh, Sean O'Malley he's going to be fighting on that same card uh, August 15th I believe this UFC 252 against Marlon Cheeto Vera that's a great fight and he's not they're they're taking it slow and he's not you know getting propelled to say maybe he was talking a little trash with Cody Garbrandt and trying to get a fight like that but uh Marlon Vera is definitely no slouch uh and, and no easy fight and so it looks like here too Sean O'Malley's already it looks like he's got a number 14 beside his name so he'll be working his way up the rank is I don't know if he'll climb here because I don't think Marlon Bear is ranked, but man, undefeated, uh, very unique striking style, always a threat uh, to have a knockout performance of the night type of thing. So especially with, with JDS, Jarzinho, Stipe, Daniel. Um, and there's some other fights booked that I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure at least that, that have been reported, but that's definitely going to be a super exciting card. I, I think the one thing too, that I just want to take away and we'll leave on this is just, you got to give Dana White the credit for the fact that these have all of these events so far have been pulled off um, in in a as far as we know a safe manner. Those who have been infected were taken out. Um, he's been able to still get quality fights on the cards. Uh, there hasn't been any a major technical issue. There hasn't been a major um, containment issue. So at least we can see from a small sample from an individual competitive sport where you really can limit the number of people who have access to the ring, to the fighters, et cetera. Dana White's done everything he's supposed to do to this point, as far as we know, to be successful at this, to be protective of his fighters and to pull off events that are still of the quality that you would have expected before the pandemic. 
And not only that, and, and yes, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit for being able to do that. But not only that, to take the issues that come with this, like athletes testing positive and having, having those holdups uh, with like a Gilbert Burns, and, and not only find a way to, you know, they would have been prepared to just strip that fight and move on with Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky being the main event. And that was the idea that was many thought was going to take place anyway. But they dealt with that and put on a better show. They were able to book a fighter in six days, get him tested. You know, when I say what they had to go through, you know, they're taking a test Wednesday. They get to Las Vegas, take another test. They quarantine there. They fly to Abu Dhabi, take another test, quarantine there. You know, you're seeing pictures of Jorge Masvidal laying in this hotel room on his back with with hot towels on every inch of his body, sweating weight out. Um, you know, the, like I said, not only are they dealing with the, the positive tests and fighters having to quarantine, and it's the same thing any other sport's going to have to do to put this on or anywhere else in the world with anyone, but to do that and, and still put on an event with 1.3 million pay-per-view buys that – more than anything since Connor Habib and what was that 2018. So, so to be able to, to kind of climb that mountain and not only do it the right way and keep everyone safe and, and put people like a Rose Nami Yunus in a comfortable place that's dealt with this very close to home when it comes to the virus affecting her family and feeling comfortable, not only just going to an event, but going across the world to do this and leaving the family, risking being quarantined. And for the company to be able to put these fighters in, yes, you can argue the pay and the fact that they need these checks and have to provide for their family. But let's just be clear, Jorge Masvidal got paid. You know what I mean? So, like, it's more than taking care of your family when it comes to that, even in a law. So the USC being able to pull all these strings together and really break barriers in their own, when it comes to their own record. I mean, they've already sold more merch this year than they did all of last year. So, I mean, that's big things for the company in a difficult time when, when they had, you know, we talked about this in the very early stages that they had something to capitalize on. And not only have they done it without a hitch, but they've done some of the biggest things that they've ever done in the history of the sport. And more of these fight cards than not, maybe only one or two have been boring, but none of them have been boring. Um, every single one of them have been pretty excited to me. So, so that's been a, something maybe I didn't necessarily expect to be honest. And it's been fun to watch. Trevor, that's our time. So please tell folks how they can follow you. Tell them um, about the get rich uh, podcast one more time. And when's your next one coming up? Yeah, man. I, I don't know if I'll do something later today or tomorrow. I've been playing some phone tag with people. I'm sure you know how that goes. So it's kind of tough. And I'm in a format where I can take some time and kind of, you know, if I, if I miss a card or I miss a pay-per-view, I know it's been big, but try to put out a good product and have good interviews and get the right people on and have time and straight. So I don't know for sure when I'll have something out, but I am talking to a few fighters. I might have Josh Emmett back on soon. Uh, Kama Worthy, who was on the prelims a while back. I'm going to reach out to Calvin Cater's team soon, give him a second to kind of process that win um so yeah you follow me richie tmr r-i-t-c-h-i-e-t-m-r twitter uh youtube instagram i'm sure the link for my podcast is going to be on twitter bio instagram bio all of that um get rich with trevor richie search that apple spotify anywhere you can pretty much find it and we've got stuff up already with world champion trainers fighters submission grapplers boxers so so you can go check that out and i hope you guys enjoy it and he has some gear on the hard to paint. I'm waiting on mine to come, man. It's supposed to be here this week, so I can't wait. Yeah, on. so folks, go check that out, too. It's dope stuff. It's dope stuff, so please check him out there. Um, for Trevor Ritchie and myself, David Grubb, this has been Hard to Paint, and I'll be back tomorrow. See you then.